Amen. I'm so grateful. Daniel, thanks, man, for leading us today, our whole team, for uh, just leading us to worship Jesus. I'm grateful for the people that serve us every single week, week in, week out, people from our chairs, from our seats who just give their talent to help us see Jesus all the more. Amen? Amen. Thank you, guys. It's one of, that's one of the heartbeats that we have here. I know that's one of the heartbeats that Daniel has. It's one of the heartbeats that I have as a, as a pastor is not just that we would gather people together and just sing songs, but that you in your own life would actually see Jesus. And that happens in so many different ways. It happens in, in so many different moments. But, but my heartbeat is that you might, in going throughout your life, not just know Jesus cognitively, but see him in all the ways that he's blessing all around you. That's, that's, and when we sing, I see Jesus so clearly as the Lamb of God who died in my place. Amen? Hey, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Uh, if you're new with us here at Bethel, we're uh, a church that kind of walks through a book of the Bible, sort of one book at a time, one chapter at a time, really one, two, three, four verses at a time. And we're today coming to Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. And uh, there's an old preacher down in the south by the name of Vance Havner back in the uh, early 1900s, mid-1900s. He was a friend of my family. And um, so I have some writings by him. And um, when he came to Romans chapter 5, verse 3, he had this story that he would tell. And I want to tell it to you because I just, I think it's so quirky. Uh, and you'll see, you'll see why in a moment. Um, in 18, someone say amen about that? Adrian. Yeah, you're a quirky guy too, man. Yeah. You're going to love this story, Adrian. It's about farming. Uh, in 1892, an invasive species got through customs and immigration at the uh, U.S.-Mexico border and started devouring an important research in America at that time, cotton. We love cotton in America, don't we? We are like cotton people. Um, some countries are silk, America, we are cotton. Uh, and that's not a harsh thing, that's, that's reality. Uh, the species that came up from Mexico to the south and started devouring cotton was called the boll weevil. Did anybody ever hear of a boll weevil before? Anybody ever seen a boll weevil I'd never seen a boll weevil. I had to look them up. They're these little, like, mite-looking things. They're like little beetle-looking things. And what boll weevils do, they live almost exclusively on cotton. Like, they don't live anywhere else. They feed exclusively on cotton, kind of like Japanese beetles in our, our, well, my whole garden. Or the trees in the back, we have a bunch of ash trees, and um, they're, they're ash beetles, and they destroy beautiful things, like, almost overnight. And um, coincidentally, if you drove to the back of our property recently and saw all the ash trees that have died, um, sharpen your chainsaw blades because in a couple of weeks we'll be cutting them all down, all of them, just all of them. Amen? <laughs> Ladies, get that, get that thing going, all right? Tell your husband, 50 to 1 ratio gas, get it, get it ready. Um, so here's what happened. Back in 19, or 1892, the bull weevil migrates north into America. It wreaks havoc on the cotton industry. And since then, over 100 years ago, this tiny little insect has costed upwards of $23 billion in losses to the U.S. economy. Within its first five years, the uh, boll weevil destroyed almost half the cotton in the South. 1903, the USDA chief of the plant industry called them a wave of evil, and I wonder if that's why they're called boll weevils. They devastated land values, property values plummeted, and a lot of people from the South actually ended up moving up North at this time. Many people moved to Gary, Indiana, coincidentally. In... Uh, Attempts to counteract the bug, farmers decided not to, like, you know, 
fight them off. There was a swarm of them. There's nothing you could do. They just decided to plant more and more and more cotton, hoping that they could yield what they used to yield before, but it would take twice the effort. It was so bad that President Teddy Roosevelt actually suggested importing a predatory ant from Guatemala to feed on the weevils. That's how, that was like the military stroke of genius right there. In Guatemala, there's an ant that'll kill this thing. Let's bring it up. In a small town in Alabama, though, Enterprise, Alabama, the story was a little different. By 1909, the boll weevil had reached Enterprise, where cotton, of course, was king. And after seeing the devastation of cotton production, one seed farmer looked around and decided to do something about this. So as seed farmers do, they kind of like analyzed the soil, kind of looked at what was going on there. And for generations, everyone planted cotton. And he said, you know, I don't know why we haven't thought of this in the first place, but this sand is kind of good, it seems like, for peanuts. So maybe I could grow some peanuts here. And so he went off to North Carolina, got a whole thing of, I don't know how you get peanuts, but you got peanuts and gave them out to one farmer. Only one farmer in Enterprise, Alabama had the guts to not grow cotton that next year. Everybody scorned the guy, saying, what are you doing to the family farm? You're going to ruin it. You just need to plant more cotton. Come on, we're Cotton, cotton County. And at the end of the growing season, this peanut farmer took in enough money to pay all of his debts and to plan for his future with savings. So much so that the next year, the seed farmer distributed no cotton but purely peanuts to everyone else in time who was like, okay, we see it. Peanuts work. And Enterprise, Alabama became a booming economy, the number one growing county for peanuts and peanut oil manufacturing in the country, growing so much that they had a million pounds of peanuts in their first year, which is equivalent to about $5 million worth of peanuts. That's a lot. The town was so pumped about peanuts. In 1919, they erected this statue. This is the oldest picture of this that I could find. This is from the National Archives. Uh, this is the middle of downtown uh, Enterprise, uh, Alabama. Uh, they took a part of the street and they closed it off with this giant sort of like Lady Liberty type feature. She's holding up this like disc. Uh, about 20 years after this picture was taken, the, the county actually paid for a copper giant two foot big bull weevil to be made and placed on top of that. So actually it's adorning that little spire at the top of it. And they put this plaque up on this monument. And it's hard to read it, but here's what I'll, I'll read it for you. It says, in profound appreciation of the bull weevil, and what it has done as the herald of prosperity. I wonder if today you wouldn't be able to look at the trials that you're facing in your life as the opportunities for prosperity in your future, just like we see here with the bull weevil. When I heard that story of Americana, I was kind of like, well, that's a quirky story, but I couldn't help but think it perfectly encapsulates the experience of Christians who anticipate coming to Jesus and having all the blessings of God and yet finds their cup that they drink of in life not filled with blessings but filled with bitterness. Often we expect Jesus to make our lives perfect here on earth. And um, how many people know that when you came to Jesus, you still had problems? I know that was true of me. I'm the only one. You could raise your hand, I guess. I, is anybody else here? Yeah. And isn't it true that the longer you follow Jesus, the more aware of the problems that you have you become, right? We, um, we opened this campus back in March of 2015. It's when I met one couple in our church. 
and I don't see them in this service, but I have shared their story with other people, and I figured I'd share it with everybody here. Um, they didn't know Jesus when they came into our church, and um, not sure exactly how they found out about our campus, but they came uh, one of the first couple of weeks that we opened the doors, and they heard the gospel and gave their lives to Jesus, even got baptized here in our church. I remember about six months after coming to Christ, they talked to me right back at that, that door, right, right back there. I remember standing there talking to the wife, and she said to me, she said, you know, Dan, ever since we've come to Jesus, all the, all the blessings that you talk about, all we've known is relational conflict and strife, marital discord and financial hardship, and I just got diagnosed with cancer. And she said this, in a moment of profound humility and lament, I remember her so honestly as a, as a baby Christian just saying, I wanted blessings, but all I've gotten so far of following Jesus is pain. And isn't it true in life that we come to Christ and we think, man, this is going to be amazing, this is going to be great, and God's going to heal me, I am blessed, I am healed, I'm anointed, right? All these things we sang about, and yet, we don't always feel that way, do we? She knew that Christ was the best future, but she wasn't prepared for the way which God brings us to that best future by having those blessings, by having us drink from bitter cups. Her story ends positively. I don't want to leave you hanging. About a year after she had been enduring all of this turmoil in her life, she came back, she came back to me one day um, at the end of the service, back in the same spot, right next to that little pallet thing in the back, and she's waving this piece of paper in my face. And you guys do crazy things to me at the end of services sometimes. This is one of them. She's just doing this to me. She's going, look, look, I want you to see this. And I look down, and it's a, like, medical record. And I was like, isn't this a HIPAA violation? Like, I shouldn't be looking at this. Like, this is a sin. She goes, no, 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 it's okay. I want you to see it. And I start reading through it, and it's her doctor, her, 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 her oncologist report that she had been miraculously healed and had a clean bill of health one year later. Don't miss the important part of that story. It took a year for the blessing. For a whole year, all she knew was the trial that she was walking through in her life. And I don't know where you are today, if you are barely making it financially from August to September or what health scare you're up against or what uncertain future is worrying you, but um, Romans 5 verses 3 through 5 are going to help us today to understand what we do in the midst of these hard times and the trials and the bitter cups and the purpose that God has for the blessings to come. That's kind of the setup for Romans chapter 5 verses 3 through 5. Last week, I kind of sent you out of here, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, sort of like on this hyped up Christian cheerleading moment where you all were like jacked out of your minds walking to your cars about how great Jesus is. We have peace with God. We have grace in his power. We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. And you all walked out of here like, Wah! And then you did this with your car. You went, whoop, whoop, opened the door, sat in your car, and all of a sudden, isn't it true, all of a sudden, all of the things that you were about to face in your week, all the things that you had left when you came to church, all the problems that you were enduring through life, you started going, well, how do I exalt and hope of the glory of God in the midst of my current struggle today? The reality of our lives is that we are a people who are marked by suffering. 
And as we come to Romans chapter 5, verse 3, I, I hope this isn't too obvious of a statement, but we call it Romans because Paul was writing to a group of people, the church in Rome. They were the Roman church. And these were a people who knew a great deal about suffering. As Paul was penning the letter to the Roman church, he was um, doing so as a brand new emperor had made his way to the throne as the emperor Nero. And Nero was known to the Christians like what the boll weevil was known to cotton farmers in the South of America, an invasive species out to kill and destroy. And I have to imagine, Paul is writing to his brothers and sisters in Christ that the majesty of our justification, the gifts that it brings to us and how we boast in God, and in order to not be dismissed as just a pie-in-the-sky theologian or just some sort of happy-go-lucky pastor who's a, no problems, he's so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good, that, that Paul writes... What he writes here in verses 3 through 5 to a people that he knows are suffering in this current moment, not able to look ahead, but they're not looking around at the sufferings that they're enduring as Christians right then and there. And he says this. He says, here in the hardness of your life are ways to connect your being justified by faith to the experience of suffering that you have on account of Jesus. I want you to read this with me as I read it aloud, just follow along. That's where we've come through so far, and here we pick it up in verse 3. Paul says, not only that, not only what, not only are we justified by faith, so we have peace with God, which brings us grace and standing and access and faith in Christ and his presence and his throne room, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Not only do we do that, check this out, but we rejoice, say it aloud with me, in our suffering. Okay, Paul, I didn't see that one coming. I rejoice in a lot of things. I rejoice in Cubs winning the World Series. I rejoice in getting a new car. I rejoice in the birth of a child. I rejoice in a lot of things. But we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Here's verses 1 and 2. Tomorrow's going to be perfect. Here's verses 3 through 5. Today has got some lousy pain. Verses 1 and 2. We are triumphant. Verses 3 through 5. But we're in the midst of tribulation. Do you see it? We have such hope in the glory of God to come, but today we know we're not walking in all that is going to be. We have, we have to be honest about the pain that we feel here. And isn't this great that our justification by faith allows us to rejoice in our sufferings? And here's the big idea. God often puts our blessings in bitter cups so that we might hope in his presence and in his love. And I appreciate passages like this one, which lay them, themselves out so logically, it's just so simply, and yet the truth is incredibly deep and honest. And I see here five words to hold fast to in the midst of a trial, five words that we don't typically associate with suffering, but which we should associate with suffering, which we should associate with our trials, so that when we do, when we Feel these five words at work in our life in the midst of our trial. It will lead us to build monuments to our pain that we become glory to God for what he's done. 
So five words. Here's the first. The first is this. If Paul was here today, he'd just say this. He'd say, hey, in your trial, rejoice. In your trial, rejoice. That's hard for us because we're people who are used to thinking of our sufferings as punishments or as problems or as acts of God that are going to kill us. Paul says in our sufferings, there's a deep connection with Jesus here. And someday, I hope maybe this this week, you'll go online, find some Bible study um, helps and search what in our sufferings, this phrase, in our sufferings has to do with the sufferings of Christ in the scriptures. It is tremendously amazing. I don't have time to unpack all of that for us today. But for Paul, the sufferings that he is referring to is simply this. They're situations allowed by God to grow me that I may not prefer or choose for myself. It's a situation allowed by God to grow me that I might not prefer or I wouldn't choose for myself. I, I want to be crystal clear on this because a lot of times I talk to people and I go, hey, how are you doing? And they're like, man, I'm just suffering right now. Man, I'm in a trial. God's really got me in a trial. And, and I um, say like, well, what's up? And they're like, well, I wrecked my car and so now my dad's got to drive me to school. And I go, no, 16-year-old boy, that is your own stupidity. What you are experiencing is the consequences of being an inexperienced driver. You're not in a trial. You're suffering for your own dumbness. And I want to acknowledge that in life, it's a biblical principle, you reap what you sow. We're not talking today about just suffering for the dumb things that you've done that have caused you to be in the situation you're in. What, What we're talking about today, when Paul says in our sufferings, we're talking about the situations in life that that if we could have had it any other way, we would have had it that way. Situations that we didn't choose, but God allowed in our lives for us to endure. The, the, the moments of hardship when you get the news that a loved one has died. It's the moment after being at the same job for 42 years, working hard for the company, being called into the office, and then not having a job anymore, where you say to yourself, well, where's the justice in that? It's the moment where you've been married for so long and out of the blue, they surprise you with papers and you're in a trial. It's the moment where you used to hear a heartbeat and now you don't hear one anymore and you ask God, where is the justice in this? This is what Paul's talking about. I think Paul specifically in his mention of our sufferings is specifically mentioning our sufferings as being sticking our neck out on the line for Jesus and the persecution that comes from that. But it also encompasses way more than just enduring hardship for Christ's sake. It it is what it is to be human living in a fallen world, going through things that we don't prefer. And Paul says in the midst of this, we should rejoice. Don't feel like this is a letter that is not applicable to us today that was written 2,000 years ago. Because Paul was writing to the Romans who knew something about suffering for the sake of Jesus. When Paul was writing this letter to the church in Rome, Nero was the first term emperor. A few years into Nero's reign, Nero was actually, he's the, he's the emperor that we think of as burning Rome down, sort of playing the fiddle crazily deranged up in his high tower. And that's definitely true. He's the emperor that would have Paul, who's writing Romans, killed just a few years later. But the first couple of years of Nero's reign were actually, he had very little to do with governing. The first five years were relative peace. Um, Christians 
were able to come back to Rome during the reign of Nero. And I say they came back because a decade before Paul wrote the book of Romans, all the Jews in Rome were expelled by the emperor Claudius, who wrote a famous edict. You can go online and find out all about the edict of Claudius. And Claudius uh, insists that the Jews leave Rome because they were causing a stir about this guy, Crestus. And historians often jibe at Claudius for getting Jesus' own name wrong. They, he says that they're stirring up this issues on account of this guy, Crestus. And so get out of here, you Jews. Coincidentally, in Acts chapter 18, verse 2, Paul meets in Italy a family by the name of Priscilla and Aquila who had to leave Rome on account of Claudius. We, we see the history all there in Acts. So these are people that Paul is writing to who have endured governmental, organized, systemic persecution on account of their faith in Jesus Christ. And I wonder today, if we could just sort of take our eyes off ourselves for a moment, if you would be on board with Jesus, if you knew that at the end of the day, government officials were going to come to your house, knock on your door, ask you, do you believe in Christ? And if you say yes, you're going to have to relocate, leave your community, leave your job, leave your family, leave your house. Let's not think that these sufferings that Paul is talking about are small things to these people. In some ways, they are greater sufferings than any suffering that you and I have ever imagined in a quasi-tolerant America. Paul says to these people whose lives were severely upended and put on the line because they didn't believe the emperor was the son of God, they believed that Jesus was the son of God. He says to these people, he says, your trials don't usurp the blessings of God nor the reality of his blessings, but they themselves are an opportunity for joyful boasting since they confirm the fact that we are redeemed. Je Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. James, Jesus' half-brother, said, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds. And Peter, so in line with Paul here, you could almost transpose their thoughts upon one another from Romans 5 to what Peter says here in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 14. Look at what Peter says. If you can kind of keep an eye in your copy of Scripture on Romans 5 and, and kind of watch here. Peter says this, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted in the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. How in step Peter and Paul are with one another. Which means this, friends, no matter what trial you're going through, here, here's, the, here's the big idea. Your trials don't have to make you miserable. Your trials, they don't have to make you miserable. Because our future is secured, we are justified by faith in Christ. Earthly suffering is paltry compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says that somewhere else in Scripture. Paul's not saying, hey, put a smile on. Thank God for that. The psalmists, half of the psalms are psalms of lament. Actually, technically a third of them, but that's half of the idea of the psalms. So it's not come into church and be fake today because everything's going to be perfect. But what he's saying is to rejoice even in the midst of the hard things you're going through. It's far more Christ-like to live in joyful trials 
Isn't it true that some Christians are just like that little cartoon donkey, Eeyore, moping around about everything? Oh, woe is me. Come to church today and people are happy, but I'm not. I am. In my former church, I used to have a standing tea time on Mondays. Uh, it was a glorious thing. It was before I had kids. <laughs> I'd play uh, golf with this one guy. We didn't go to the same church, but we were both Christians, and he was a part of our group. And uh, I remember one of the other guys that we played with was one of the, guy that, the guy that I worked with. He, he was a pastor. His aunt died, and she left him a pretty large inheritance, and he rolled up to the pro shop in a brand new BMW. <laughs> I don't know your opinions on pastors driving BMWs. That's no, not for here or there. But you wouldn't believe this guy on the tee box moping around going, why does this guy get a BMW and I'm driving this beat-up hoopty? And he's looking at this guy going, my guess I slave and I save and I work harder than that guy and I try harder than that guy and I'm doing it right, man. I'm on a budget and I'm and, and, and on the T-Box. I just remember looking at this guy being like, dude, the trial that I'm having to endure right now is you, man. You and your chronic complaining and anger about not getting the blessings of God in your life. And how many of us take just such this obsessive look upon ourselves and the down, downward navel-gazing that we do because we can't get our eyes off of ourselves and look up to see what God is doing in the world through his son. To, to realize that you have breath in your lungs today, and that's a gift. That you have hope for tomorrow, and that is a blessed gift. I could have a whole sermon based upon the gifts of God but that we often miss. We often just wallow in our trial. But have you ever been around the people who are confident in the midst of the storm? It's a different breed. They're being harassed at work for their faith. Their job is on the line. The company is 30 days from bankruptcy. But they say something to the effects of, however God sees fit to work it out, I'll give him the praise. And it's not just words, but you believe that they believe that? Aren't you inspired to trust God all the more? See, Christian suffering in such a weird way is one of the, is one of the reasons why I'm a Christian in the first place. Tim Keller wrote it this way, and I'm going to paraphrase him, but he gives us the idea that all the other worldviews in the world have no idea what to do with suffering except Christianity. I'm going to paraphrase so that your ear hears it in a way that you understand it, um, and then I'll quote him. And he says this. He says, what, where fatalism, the idea of fatalism, that everything has a predetermined end, where fatalism says, suffering's not your fault and you really shouldn't bother you. Christianity teaches that suffering is really emotionally overwhelming. Where Buddhism teaches that suffering can be eliminated and avoided by getting yourself in the right frame of mind, Christianity teaches that suffering is tangibly real and unavoidable. Where karma teaches that suffering is deserved, you get what's coming to you. Christianity teaches that suffering is often unfair. Secularism teaches that suffering has no meaning, but Christianity teaches that suffering is really meaningful. And now I directly quote him. I say, There's a purpose to it, 
And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you ever can imagine. There is a reason for rejoicing in the trial because God is at work in the trial taking you through a maturing process. It's called endurance, if you would just endure. That's the second word that we see right here in this passage. If you're taking notes, the first was to rejoice, and the second was to endure. In the trial, endure. Look at what Paul says. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that, say it with me, suffering produces, suffering produces endurance. Now, I know I look like a runner, but I hate running. I feel you. You know that movie, Chariots of Fire? That guy, uh, he, he's like, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. I'm like, when I run, I feel the condemnation of God. <laughs> I just hate it. All throughout college, I was so lanky. Everybody's like, man, how many miles do you run? I was like, I don't. I don't. Don't do that ever. It's suffering, man. And I hate running. But lately, I've been suffering because I've been running. And I got a gym membership, which I think is ridiculous because um, my neighborhood has perfectly good roads. And my basement has a perfectly good elliptical machine. But sometimes you got to spend money to be motivated. And that's just me. And uh, I jump on the machine. I've been working out. I've been running more consistently now than I ever have in my life. And I've noticed something shocking. Um, my, I've been doing this little bit of experiment, and I found this. This is going to blow you away. The more I run, the more I can run. Isn't that crazy? It's like the more I do the thing, the more I can do the thing. And um, I've been doing the scientific experiment. I'm actually ready to unveil the, 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 the findings that I've done in my research. Are you ready to hear them? This is for the first time I've ever, ever said this out loud or made public this reality. Um, doctors are analyzing my findings just to make sure that they're accurate and true. But um, I think that everybody needs to know this. I think exercise is actually good for you. <laughs> Did you know that? I mean, it's suffering. But it helps. Sarcasm aside, uh, when I'm running, I'm suffering. I find that when I, I, if I hop on a treadmill, there are certain checkpoints that I, along the way for me when I'm running that it starts to get hard and I have to keep my head in the game. I have to um, remain on the treadmill. I have to keep focused on the music. Otherwise, I know myself too well. I hate running so much, I'll throw in the towel too fast. I'll be like, nine minutes, that's enough. And, and I have to just stay I have to just tell myself, stay there, stay there, just stay here, just stay here. I have to keep focused on what I'm doing. And that's the essence of the word endure. It's the Greek word. If you ever know one Greek word in your life, I hope it's this one. It's the word hupomeno, H-U-P-O-M-E-N-O. Hupo means under, and meno means to remain. The idea is that of, a, of, a, of someone doing a bench press and and putting as much weight as he could possibly muster on there and shoving the bar up and pulling it down and shoving the bar back up and not pushing out of it, but being under the weight so that you might grow stronger, that you might endure. And too many people get into a trial and they 
want to skirt their way out from underneath it. And they miss what God is doing in the midst of their suffering because they give up too quick. What Paul means that when you stick your neck on a line for Jesus and suffering comes your way, is that amazing results are going to come in your life, in your spiritual walk, if you just stay in there, if you just stay on the treadmill, if you just endure, if you just go through the trial to its completion. And um, some of you need to hear this word today because this week you said something like, that's it, I'm going to have that conversation with my dad about faith because I love him, I want him to know Jesus. And you took a risk, it didn't go well, and now you feel like there's friction in your relationship because of your risk, and you're tempted to take everything back to fix it. But in the trial, endure. Don't look for the off-ramp. Don't skirt out from under the wave. Wait, stick it out. Mark, our Cedar Lake campus pastor, passed around this quote to our teaching team this week from a guy named Jared Wilson, and he said it this way. He said, sometimes when God closes a door, he doesn't open a window because he wants you to be in the building when it falls down. And I don't know what trial you're facing right now that feels like you're pinned against the mat, but we rejoice in God. If we rejoice in God in our sufferings, we know that staying under this trial is actually the will of God in our lives. And before we move on to the next part, I just always feel obligated at this moment just to say out of a deep sense of compassion to many people who live in marriages that are physically abusive, that remaining in the trial does not mean remaining at home. Remain married, work that out, but don't for a second think that the Bible's will is for you to sit in a house where you could be seriously wounded. Your husband needs help. Maybe your wife needs help. And you do not need to enable them by enduring their stupidity. Okay, back in the text. When we endure the trials in our life, look at what verse says comes. It's that endurance produces character. I remember uh, reading Calvin and Hobbes when I was growing up. Uh, Do you guys read Calvin and Hobbes? I love those books. My grandpa had all of them. Whenever we go see him, I'd go right to his Calvin and Hobbes collection. And there, there was this thing in Calvin and Hobbes where the dad was always, like, getting Calvin to do all of his dirty work and just telling him, like, taking out the trash builds character. And go stay outside. It builds character. And walk a mile without shoes. It builds character. And my favorite clip of all Calvin and Hobbes history is this one. It's uh, Calvin pretending to be his dad saying what he thinks his dad says. Calvin, go do something you hate. Being miserable builds character. And um, it's a really insightful, uh, Bill Watterson has a really big insight into our human existence, but um, don't have Calvin's perspective on character building, okay? We ought to aspire to new Christ-like character. Do you know how God shapes us into the image of Christ? When God wants to build in you character, he grabs a trial and he allows it to hover over you for as long as it takes for him to get his work done. In the friction of trials, we do this. We, this is the third word if you're taking notes. You grow. Grow. Maybe mature would be a better word, but when you suffer, you endure, and when you endure, you change, and you grow, and you mature, and all of that is embodied by this word character that Paul uses. And some Christians have never considered the type of character that God wants to shape them 
into. And that's an awful way to live. I was reminded of this by my own kids uh, just yesterday. Um, we, uh, we came back from our vacation, which was wonderful, and um, our kids were at home, and they did something where it was very irresponsible. We needed a consequence, and so we, we, we took some money from them out of their allowance. Bad parents, I know, robbing from our kids, trying to teach a lesson. It was $1.25. That's what we made them fess up for, $1.25. And being a little bit of like a, uh, like extra overly compassionate dad that shouldn't be, you know, so have their, be wrapped around the fingers of their kids. Is that the phrase? That's not it. That's right. Melted by my kids often. Yesterday I was looking at them and I said, hey, you guys recently lost some money. Do you want to earn some more allowance by doing something easy? How about you guys just clean up these toys and I'll give you, oh, let's say $1.25. And my five-year-old looks at me, and she goes, no, nah, I'm good. <laughs> I kid you not, it's word for word. And I'm like, okay, well, she doesn't understand the value of money. That's on me. I got to help her with that. So I go, well, baby, you know, yesterday you lost that much money. Now you have an opportunity. Isn't that great that you have an opportunity to get it back? And she goes, I just think that I'm going to live on what I have. I've got more. And I'm like, going back to the well, I'm like, well, no, 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 no. See, you had this, and you, now you don't have it, but you can get it back, and that's kind of better, and it's not hard. She goes, I just don't like picking up, so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and I made the statement to her in the moment, knowing she wouldn't get it, but thinking about this message, saying, Elon, that is a terrible way to live your life that will never build character in you. And we are a people who need to read our Bibles with one, air, one eye on the character of God and one eye on our own character. And where they have a discrepancy, we need to pray that God might transform our character to look more like the character of Christ. Paul's going to say that in Romans 12, so I'm just sort of like leaking, you know, spoiler alert, it's coming. But he does that in the trial. He grows us in his character by doing things that we don't often prefer. Don't be a 50-year-old, 5-year-old. Let God shape in you the character of someone who loves Jesus and looks like Jesus. One of my hopes for this church is not that we would come together and, you know, we're still growing by God's grace. I'm grateful for, uh, you know, season after season of our campus. There are new people still coming, joining our new family. I'm grateful for that. My hope isn't that we just grow a lot of, attendance numbers, a lot of people who come and sing nice songs and hear messages out of God's word and go about the rest of their day. My hope, my hope for what God would be doing in this place is that you could see how Jesus is using the trials that you're currently in right now. And you come to church, and in the midst of that trial, you sing songs of praise and say, God, you're so good. Even right now, I don't feel it, but I know it, so I'm going to sing it. And in that, God, you're shaping in me character of Christ. The character that depends upon the Father for all things. And then that we'd be building people of such character that would go out into their workplaces and have spines of conviction for Jesus. That would shine a light of the gospel in all the areas in which we live across Northwest Indiana. I don't like to just hope for this for HP camps. I hope for this for all of Bethel. That we might be little Christians, Christ-like ones, the followers of Jesus out in the world. And how do we become that? If we allow the trials to endure and to help us shape us in our character. 
Friends, rejoice in the trial because God's doing something in your life. He's shaping you to look more like Jesus. And sometimes it's in the midst of persecution and suffering that you're unaware of how your character is actually growing. But here's the thing about character. It always reveals itself in action, particularly so in trials. This is why the girl doesn't marry the guy after the first date, because you haven't had time to watch him suffer, right? Don't marry someone until you've watched them deal with pain, until you've watched them go through a trial. Because when you're squeezed in life, you see your character come out. This is true. Paul says this of the Macedonian church in 2 Corinthians 8. I just think it's so appropriate. I want to read it to you. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, that's the brothers in Corinth, but also the historical church of God, even us today. We want you to know about the grace of God's given among the churches of Macedonia, the power that God gave to this church. For in a severe test of affliction, they were in a trial, their abundance of joy and out of their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So here's what he's saying. The church excelled in generosity despite being persecuted, despite not having money to keep the lights on in their church. And they were so committed by their character to the mission of the gospel going forth around the world that they decided to fund missions work before they funded their own church. And Paul says that was the grace of God and power that was being displayed in their trial. Their character was proved. So I wonder, what comes out of you when you're squeezed? For some of us, we talk a big game of theology and scripture and trusting God, but if you get in a bit of affliction, what comes out of us often isn't godly, but gross cowardice. Know that we would endure suffering so that God might grow us up, amen? Maybe I was another pastor, I'd call this sermon, don't waste your trial. Suffering to endurance. Look back at verse uh, 3. Suffering to endurance, verse 4. Endurance to character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Here's the fourth word in the trial, hope. God uses trials to grow our hope, our conviction that his promises can be trusted It seems counterintuitive, but if you struggle today to hope in God, what you don't need is a mysterious check in the mail to prove God's care for you. What you really need is to exercise hope by going through a trial. It's at the end of our sufferings that we see if we endured, that our suffering didn't diminish or weaken our hope as we might have expected, but rather instead our certainty in God was increased. And I don't have time to share with you the stories of how I've seen this in my life, but we see hope as a muscle exercised by the fiery trial, which in the end produces hope against hope. And some of us are there today. Romans 4.18, that's the phrase that Paul used to describe Abraham's experience. In hope, he believed against hope. And isn't it true that in the midst of a a trial, you, you can get so clouded, you don't even know where to look for hope in the first place. It's like, I'm hoping for hope, but I'm hoping against hope. I don't believe hope can even be found, but God, I hope that there is hope. And in the trial, we hope. We hope against hope so that we believe in hope. I'm rejoicing in hope of God's glory and rejoicing in sufferings which prove the hope of God's glory. That's Paul's point for why we hope. That's Paul's thought 
as he ends this verse in verse 5, saying, hope does not put us to shame. Some of us think, well, if I hope in God and he doesn't come through, I'm going to be ridiculed. And Paul's like, no, you won't. You will not. Because we have a faithful God who is sure in his promises, who will never leave you nor forsake you, who, as he'll say in a few chapters, works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. See, we are full of God's love towards us. I don't know if you've ever felt like you've been alone in a trial. You feel like in your emotions, God has sort of left you, God has abandoned you. It's not uncommon to feel like that. And yet here's the promise is that, is that this, is that God's love has been poured into our hearts. I've been calling this the, 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 the blessings in bitter cups. And some of us feel like the emptiness in our life is just the bitterness of life. Just, just, God, we want your blessing, but won't you give it to us? And he says, well, I've given you this trial for me to fill you up with my love by the Holy Spirit. And so, friends, this is the picture, that your cup has been filled by the Spirit of God. And how, how, does, how does that happen? Well, it, it's agape love. Agape love is one-way love. It's from God from God to us, it never goes this way. It just doesn't work. We, we don't have it in us to get it back in the bottle. Agape love is from God to us always. We have filial love, right? We have like, like the love that we can share with brothers, but we never have it in us to show this unconditional, unwavering, foundational in his covenant love that says I will never leave you nor forsake you. And friends, in the trial, we get through hope by enduring and growing in character and hoping in God. Why? Because he's filled us with his love. Not only that, he's filled us with his love by his spirit. Acts, or in John, Jesus calls him the comforter. In Acts, the spirit comes to the church. And being filled with the spirit means that you have the absolute presence of God today, no matter how you feel. This is the most amazing promise in Romans chapter 5, I think, is that we have been filled with the love of God for us that is based upon his covenantal promises and has been stamped on us by the promise of the Spirit. And I'm so far out of time, i got to wrap this up. But I want you to know this, that when you understand that God has filled you with his love, it allows you to glorify God in the trial. That's the last word. In the trial, glorify God. We don't always feel hope, but we know hope. And when we do, we glorify God. So if we just put this passage back together with Romans verses 1 and 2, we see how thoroughly Trinitarian our justification and its blessings are. You see, the Father receives us. The Son gives us peace with the Father and access into his throne. The Spirit brings us through whatever hardship might come our way. Why? Because we know the love of God that fills us and his presence is near us. And when we walk through whatever comes our way, God gets all the glory and his grace and his peace by faith. We say, come what may. Just end by quoting Paul's testimony to the Corinthians he says this, he says, my grace, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast, I will exalt, I will rejoice all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. We glory in God during the trials. We give glory to God after the trial. We give glory to God in the bitter cup of God's blessings. We ask Abraham, who endured Mount Moriah, if he'd take it back, and he'd say no. You ask Jacob, who his character was wrought by a stone pillow, if he would take back all those years, and he'd say no. Joseph suffering in the dungeon of Pharaoh. David fleeing for his life. Peter suffering in his denial, John on the Isle of Patmos, and Jesus, Jesus on Calvary. Friends, all throughout the pages of sacred scripture are testimonies of men and women who would not take back their pain because in the trial, they could see the glory of God. I just got to ask, what about you? I have no idea what trial you're going in right now. What trial maybe you've come out of. But what in your past, what in your present is a trial that God wants to produce growth in you and glory for himself? 